We are indeed in the midst of spiritual journeys with tribulations, joy, companionship, melodies, vast scenery, passion, pain, love, and loss. We may not have certainty about absolute truths or about final causes and doctrines or about deities. However, we all seek and clasp sources of energy, inspiration, and love. We all seek the sacred circles, sites, energies, and connections, and we seek to share what we may of what animates each of us. While we, not, while we may not have an absolute or unshakable faith, we may know where to turn and how to touch the roots of what is good and true. We have likely had our spontaneous and powerful connections with mentors, with the music, with the cosmic light of sun, moon, and stars. And sometimes at our best, we find ways to share these connections with our families, our congregation, our coworkers. The Irish poet William Butler Yeats was a visionary and something of a mystic during difficult times for Europe and for Ireland. My mother did her master's thesis on Yeats' symbolism of the moon, and she alerted me in my teens to her use of a mythic series of books she taught as the backbone of her honors English class to high school students. This was written by an obscure classics professor, J.R.R. Tolkien. Some of you may be familiar with his writings and the movies adapted from his work. Yeats wrote a poem that my father kept the last stanza of on his desk, where it could remind him of what he and all in our family cared for most. The poem is The Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honeybee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer and noon a purple glow, an evening full of linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. There is always room for small miracles, sometimes taken for granted. One of these miracles is spoken of by the poet Ellen Court, well known to many of you here at the fellowship. Just as I learned from my parents about sacred water 
and the power of mythology and poetry, she learned and recalled her mother's wisdom and sweetness. In the poem, in her poem over and over again, she writes, when I go to the grocery store and stand in front of the shelf filled with jars of honey, every brand spells the word mama, early morning toast, sliced from a loaf of homemade bread spread with honey, dipped from the little wax rooms of bees. Honey was a luxury at our house, and every time we had it, Mama told us how bees need strength to fly from one plant to another, how their little bodies grow fat from the dust of pollen when they enter the open house of flowers how they have to regurgitate a sip of nectar 200 times in order to turn it into honey. Mama, naming what cannot be named the pure grace of hard labor, the soft hum of gratitude, Mama. I'm beginning to understand how the long years unwind, how stories come back on the wings of memory, simple things locked together, an offering of recurring echoes, even now, your voice sweet as honey. This past Wednesday, my wife Suzanne and I opened our single beehive that survived the winter as some dozens of bees flew calmly in the brightening sunshine of this season. We added food to their hive and we prepare for establishing new queens and workers in three new hives next month. We had no idea if this hive would survive or not. We lost bees to the winter, but hope springs eternal. And bees are smart, diligent, and communal. Theirs is the first alien language ever decoded. The waggle dance that indicates how much blossom is how far from the hive, in what direction, precisely the direction relative to the position of the sun. In similar fashion, bees form small groups to seek the best real estate when conditions are right for a hive to swarm en masse. The small groups arrive at a consensus, as me and my wife talked about, far more effective than some committees of humans, uh, and the swarm of thousands gracefully and efficiently move into the best home. The scientist Christoph Koch reviews the concept of panpsychism, the notion that consciousness is everywhere, including all throughout the natural world. Scientists from the University of Lausanne, looking at evolution and related uh, indicators, have concluded that the honeybee dance communication likely emerged between 20 and 40 million years ago. Our language and our collaborative efforts should be so effective and longstanding and successful. In the meantime, perhaps the next Outagamie County Fair will be held as scheduled, and you can visit the visible hive with transparent walls and see the dance communications going on, as well as baby bees emerging from their chamber after they are ready to dry their wings and fly. Well, in the meantime, take good counsel from Mary Oliver's poem, I Worried. Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing. I gave it up. I took my old body and went out into the morning and sang.
So in spite of all the mysteries of this life, and perhaps because of them, find all the beautiful windows in this world and devote your time to the teachers. Bees, flowers, trees, waterfalls, the moon, stars, sunrises, sunsets, heroic people and creatures, and last but not least, the wisdom found in every person every day. So be it. This is it, friends. Today is the big day, the one we've all been waiting for. It's the end of the pledge campaign at the fellowship. <laughs> Woohoo! Well, if you've been around for a while, you know that it's actually the beginning of the end. But there's hope, friends, there's hope. If you have not already, we need you, we implore you to turn in your pledge form today. Today is the deadline to let us know how much you are able to donate financially in the coming year. Without it, we have a really hard time making a responsible budget. And if you turn it in on time, you can get in a drawing for some really great prizes for next week. And one of the best things about this particular pledge form this year is that it can potentially be the last traditional pledge form that you ever have to complete for us again. Our goal is to never have to do this big campaign again, where we ask everyone to fill out a form, and then we wait, and then we hope, and then we nag, and then we call you. And then we do our best with the pledge numbers that we've got and any other educated guesses that we can come up with. The time has come for all of that to be a thing of the past. We are asking you to fill out your form and mark the box saying that it will be in perpetuity, that it will be ongoing until you let us know otherwise. Our hope is that this will make it easier for you in the future and it will also make it easier for us to plan Speaking of planning, planning is something that I'm pretty good at. I'm by nature someone who enjoys and has a lot of skill at organizing things and laying them all out and figuring out what to do with whatever it is that I have. But along with that skill comes a deep need to know things, to have the information, to be able to make the plan. I do not do well with uncertainty or with the unknown. Today, along with the end of our pledge campaign, is the end of our Sunday service series about game shows. And today, I am remembering an all-time favorite, a show that has been on the air longer than I have been alive. I'm talking about Wheel of Fortune! Dun, dun, yeah. Pat Sajak, the host of Wheel of Fortune, has been honored by the Guinness Book of World Records for being the longest running game show host in history. And his host, his assistant, the beautiful Vanna White, has been on that show for 40 years. The premise, I know, everybody feeling old all of a sudden? Yeah. Um, the premise of the game is that after each spin of the wheel, which lands on a certain amount of money or a prize, or if you're unlucky, that bankrupt space, which takes away all of the winnings for that round. The contestants then have to guess a letter in the word puzzle. The puzzle is a series of blanks on the board, 
And if the letter that they guess is in the puzzle, then they will appear on the board with Vanna White's help, gaining them the amount of money that they spun on the wheel or multiples of that amount of money if the letter appears more than once. Eventually, when the contestant is able, they will solve the puzzle. Sometimes, if they have amassed a good amount of money or a particularly great prize, they might want to solve that puzzle early to ensure that they get to keep that prize or that money. Because if they land on bankrupt or miss a letter, everything might be lost. That moment of, I'd like to solve the puzzle, Pat, is always a moment of tension. Usually there are lots of blank spaces left in the puzzle. Sometimes the letters on the board are enough to make it obvious, but sometimes there's a word with a different letter at the end than you might expect or something weird, and then they guess wrong. I remember yelling at the TV screen as a child or a teen when that would happen or when that puzzle seemed really obvious and they still hadn't tried to solve it. It's tricky on a game show to solve a puzzle without all the information. But what about in real life? When we have to move forward, make a decision, make a plan, or take a risk in the face of the unknown, how do we do it? One option is to worry, as Mary Oliver suggests in her poem. We could worry, will the garden grow? Will the rivers flow in the right direction? Will the earth turn as it was taught? And if not, how will I correct it? That line made me smile the first time I read that poem. How will I correct it? It is all too often that we each believe ourselves to be the only ones who can or must solve the problems of the whole world. And perhaps by our worrying, we might be able to stave off the inevitable. When things are hard and a plan is hard to come by and worrying seems the only option, Mary Oliver comes to a different conclusion. Finally, I saw that worrying had come to nothing and I gave it up. And I took my old body and went out into the morning and I sang. Now it's easy to say, I gave it up but I imagine it wasn't actually that easy to do. But there is wisdom in the path that she takes. In the early 1990s, during the siege of Sarajevo, during the Bosnian War, a man named Vedran Smilovich made a choice to move forward in the face of unimaginable uncertainty and terror. He was not a politician or a medic or a soldier or anyone with any skills that one might expect in a situation like that. He was a cellist for the Sarajevo Philharmonic Orchestra. And he began to play his cello, including Al Benoni's Adagio and G minor, in ruined buildings, under the threat of snipers, and for memorial services. He caught the attention of the world when he played his cello in full tuxedo for 22 days in the ruined square of a downtown Sarajevo marketplace after a mortar round had killed 22 people who had been waiting there for food. 
As we consider the wars and conflicts raging around our world in Ukraine, in Yemen, in Myanmar, and in so many other places, we wonder at how anyone can move forward with that kind of uncertainty, pain, and worry. It's not a simple task, but turning again and again back to our humanity to revel in the beauty of movement or music is an act of courage and an act of faith. Faith is one of those squishy words that Unitarian Universalists don't use very often because we often can't agree on the definition. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that faith is taking the first step even if you can't see the whole staircase. Taking the first step even if you can't see the whole staircase. I would define faith as a sacred trust, the kind of trust that at its core allows you to move forward in the world, even in the face of the unknown. Going up a well-lit staircase requires no faith. That's just taking action. Claiming that life is good and the world is beautiful requires no faith when everything is going well and when safety and privilege abound. But in the face of illness, despair, the rupture of relationships, the death of a loved one, the uncertainty of job loss or eviction, in the face of violence or war, claiming that life at its core is good and that the world is beautiful takes deep faith. And that is a faith that not only can sustain us through that hard time, it is also a faith that can propel us to try to make the conditions of life more good and the world more beautiful for everyone. Next week, we will be exploring spiritual practices to help ground, nourish, and empower us in this work. So I hope you will join us for that. But for now, let's just sit with the need for a deep and powerful faith. The Reverend Forrest Church describes the world of faith as a cathedral, the cathedral of the world. He uses that metaphor to describe all the ways that humanity has built throughout the span of our existence on this planet innumerable ways to name, describe, and explain the mysteries of life, death, creation, history, and purpose. He invites us to imagine that we wake up in this cathedral and, quote, awakening to the call stirring deep within you, the call of life itself, the call of God, you begin your pilgrimage. This metaphor for the lifetime of searching has echoes in our fourth of the seven Unitarian Universalist principles. Number four is the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are called by our Unitarian Universalist tradition to this search, this pilgrimage, this journey, not for a little while, but for a lifetime. And I have often wondered if our commitment to the search might only resonate with those in circumstances of comfort and privilege. 
It's all well and good to be invited to search, to be given freedom and not told the answers if you are feeling comfortable and safe and secure. But a faith that only gives you more questions sounds like an additional source of worry to me. Personally, I've been worrying a lot lately. I have shared with you all in the past that I live with a chronic illness. It came along with my body when I was born. I've never known life without it. It ebbs and it flows, and sometimes it's forgettable, though never fully gone. But sometimes it's loud and in my face, and lately it has been loud. Last summer, I had a series of illnesses that led my medical team to decide that I needed a small surgical procedure on my kidney. I had that done last November. It worked for a while, and then it needed to be tweaked in February, as these things sometimes do. And then that tweak made everything worse. So I have to go back for another outpatient surgery at Freydert Wednesday morning. And I appreciate any prayers that you can offer. I trust that the doctors and nurses and staff are skilled. And I am so grateful for my privileges of insurance and the ability to make this happen. And I'm incredibly blessed with the support of a loving spouse and family, wonderful coworkers, and with all of you. And of course, I'm worried. Of course I am. I don't know how it's all going to turn out. Is this going to fix it? Is something else going to be needed sooner, later? I struggle with my desire to have all the answers and my wish that I could foresee the future and all the possible outcomes and make a plan. And so I turn to our Unitarian Universalist tradition, seeking a source of sustaining faith, and I come again to the search for truth and meaning. More questions? What kind of faith is this if it cannot provide sustenance and hope and comfort in times of uncertainty and fear? I mentioned that I once thought that our faith might only be for those who are comfortable and have privilege, but recently I've begun to re-examine that perspective. I've come to believe that our tradition, with its free and responsible search for truth and meaning, is indeed a source of potential sustenance, hope, and comfort. I have come to believe that it is like the pilgrimage within the cathedral of the world. So let's go back to Forrest Church's metaphor. He says, look about you. Contemplate the mystery and contemplate with awe. Above all else, contemplate the windows, each beautiful in its own way. The windows of the cathedral are where the light shines through, we shall never see the light directly, only as refracted through the windows of the cathedral. Prompting humility, life's mystery lies hidden. Awakened by the light, we stand in the cathedral, trembling with awe. A few weeks ago in a sermon about Charles Darwin, I named that feeling of knowing that we are a part of a universe that is so infinitely huge and the result of an evolutionary process so complex 
and random, that it could have the effect of making us feel small and insignificant. Or, if we tilt our head and turn our heart to a different angle, we could instead experience that same knowledge as knowing that we are held in the larger cosmic wholeness, a part of a miraculous process and embraced by all that is. Similarly, the knowledge that we will never know the whole cathedral, the whole thing, we will never be able to see the whole puzzle or understand the whole of the light and the mystery, it could be cause for great worry or great suffering. Or instead, it could give us a sense of peace, that we are a miraculous part of that puzzle, and that we are held, one might say, housed in the mystery, free to search its halls, to gain glimpses of how it all fits together. Like when the time comes to solve the puzzle on Wheel of Fortune, we need not know every letter. We only have to have faith that behind those squares, the rest of the puzzle does exist, and that we can take a risk in moving forward. But most of all, rather than the comfort of certainty, which a lot of us might prefer, this search for truth and meaning provides the gift of humility, the deep comfort that it is not only up to us to keep the earth spinning as it was taught, as Mary Oliver worried. Each of us is on this journey, this pilgrimage, and if we can ground ourselves in this stance of sacred not knowing, I'll say that again, to ground ourselves in a stance of sacred not knowing, then we allow ourselves the freedom to experience life as it is, with its joy and its pain, its hope and its fear. We allow ourselves to be fully present to the beauty, the movement, the singing in the morning, the music in the face of war-torn rubble. It gives us the ability to return to a sense of humanity. And most powerfully, and the thing that sustains my faith most deeply, is that we are able to join in honesty and humility with others on this journey, to help each other along, to catch each other if we stumble or need some help to push our wheel over a rut. We can help each other to celebrate in times of happiness and share in each other's times of sorrow. We give in whatever way we are able so that we can put together the plans for the future. And of course, we will then continue to move forward with faith and even risk. Our faith teaches us that we are held, embraced by a wholeness and love that we cannot even fully comprehend, and in that the arms of that wholeness are made real in community. May we each be a part of that embrace, that journey, that love. May it be so. Amen.